Welcome back to the room. Hopefully you're well caffeinated and ready to go. Uh, we are going to take a look this morning at Mark chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. And our focus this morning is on verses 30 through 50. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And I think it's on page 583. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but... Uh, 583 in the Pew Bible, uh, or you use your phone, or if you have a paper Bible, that's great. We're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. And just as you're turning, let me remind you of a little bit of context for this passage. It's always important before you come to a passage to know what's happened before and what's coming afterward. That uh, prevents us from yanking any passage out of context, and you can manipulate the Word of God to say anything you want to if you just pull it out of context. And, and, uh, and so it's important for you to understand the context. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, his three-year public ministry from age 30 to around age 33, uh, Jesus has had two solid years of very public ministry, large crowds, uh, teaching enormous numbers of people, thousands of people coming to him, healing people, teaching people. Um, and at some point uh, toward the latter end of that two, two and a half years, Jesus pivots. He begins to teach people in parables so that the crowd, which used to understand everything that he was saying, now walks away confused. And you'll remember from Mark 7 and Mark 8, Jesus would explain everything to his followers. He would explain everything privately to his disciples. And so there's a real shift in Jesus' life and ministry uh, at the point where he starts to focus intentionally on his disciples, on developing them, on teaching them, on uh, preparing them for what's coming next. And we've just come through a section where Jesus has taken sort of these four or five road trips outside of the nation of Israel uh, to Tyre, uh, to Sidon. He went to Caesarea Philippi, uh, to the region of the, the Decapolis. He's going out away from the crowds, away from people who would recognize him, and he's investing heavily in a few people. And he's on his last stretch, really the last sort of nine months, six to nine months of his life and ministry. And it's during this time that he's, he's increasingly avoiding crowds, and he's increasingly speaking truth to his disciples. That's what's happening right now. Uh, Jesus has warned his disciples that he's about to die. Right? He warned them once in Mark chapter 8. He warned Peter, James, and John in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration. And in this passage we're about to read, he's warning the rest of the disciples a second time, but Peter, James, and John for the third time. And he's taking steps. He's pivoting toward Jerusalem. And this is going to end up in his death. Let me just pose this question to you. If you had a decision in front of you today, and you knew that making that decision would lead you on a course toward a violent death, but people would benefit as a result of you taking these decisions, would you make that decision? Would you right now start to choose a path that would lead to your physical, violent death if you knew that it would benefit others? Or would you sort of try to wiggle your way out? Because Jesus has every opportunity. 
He knows he's going to a cross, and he knows what a cross looks like. He knows what it feels like as far as seeing people who have been crucified. And he's making decisions intentionally to set his face toward Jerusalem. And doing that, he knows that he's going to be crucified. But no one else really knows what's going to happen. He's saying that, and he's going to place himself in a position for that to take place. He could just run to Egypt, right? He could just leave and go somewhere else. He could abandon his obligations and his calling. And yet he is pursuing obedience to God, and it's going to end up in his violent death. So let's read together in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, and I'll make a few comments along the way. We'll circle back around to one section at the end. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30, the Word of God says this, They went on from there, there is Caesarea Philippi, and they passed through Galilee, that's Jesus' home region. He's from there, he grew up in Nazareth, and he moved to Capernaum, so he's going through his home area. But he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So this is what I was saying. Jesus is focusing more on his disciples. He's avoiding crowds. He's going through his hometown, but he doesn't want anybody to know. Have you ever tried to go through your hometown incognito? You don't want to deal with um, your extended friends. You don't want to deal with family. You're just kind of trying to slip in and slip out, and somebody catches you, right? They say they may see you, and, oh, how long are you in town for? And let's get together. And you, you kind of maybe want to avoid all those plans. Sometimes you take a trip like that, and you just want to slip in and slip out. And, and this is similar to what Jesus is doing. He's trying to slip through his home region, doesn't want anybody to see him, doesn't want anybody to know he's there. He's simply trying to focus on what's ahead of him, and what's ahead of him is very serious. It's his crucifixion. And so he's preparing his disciples with the time he has left. He's investing heavily in them, and he's trying to avoid all of these crowds. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and this is Jesus' hometown, uh, where he is set up, uh, not his hometown Nazareth, not his birthplace Bethlehem, but his hometown where he currently lives, um, in Capernaum. And it says, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If any one would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not him, not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now there's a thread here that I hope to show you, and that is that the normal arc of our sinful fleshly desire is for the exaltation of ourself, right? That we would be better, that we would be uh, successful, that we would be maybe famous, or that we would be right, or that we would be um, correct, or that we would win the argument, or that we would be seen by others as the best, or as the smartest, or as wise, or as godly. There are a number of ways in which we have, and we sort of operate from this prideful sense of me, and us, and becoming better and greater. And the disciples, through some of these examples, uh, they're arguing about who's the best. Um, they, um, Jesus points out a child which was closer to him. And at that time, we, you know, we're kind of from the Whitney Houston, I, I believe the children are the future sort of generation that really values children. But in the time of Jesus, um, children were um, not so much as much valued in the sense that they weren't. Uh, it was a bother to uh, work with children or to be with children, and it would have been below the disciples. And so Jesus takes a child and says, uh, this, this child isn't beneath you. Um, your role, if you can't serve even one of these, the least of these children, um, then, then you're not serving me. And so Jesus is exalting the least of these. He says, if you cause even a young one to stumble, uh, we buy flour, you know, pre-ground in a package, but they would have taken a stone, it would have been a large stone about the size of a wheel, and it would have been attached to a, um, a stick around a rotating sort of cylinder, and they would put the grain in there, and it would smash the flour, but it was a very weighty um, wheel. And Jesus is saying, if you, if you cause even the, the youngest or the least of one of these children to stumble in any way, it's better for you to have this millstone tied around your neck and cast yourself into the sea. That's how important the least of these are. Uh, the disciples get um, territorial, right? They get offended when they see other people that God is using to deliver others from demons. In verse 38, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's, he's not in our group. There was almost like this rivalry taking place. And so all of these little situations are highlighting the fact that Jesus is saying, you're not trying to be the best. It's not in your, it's in your natural flesh to exalt yourself. But if you look back at, at Mark 8, when Jesus defines for them what a follower is, in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, 
Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. There is this tension for all of us. The tension of choosing how to preserve our life versus the call to lose our life. Do you feel that? Do you feel the call to self-sacrifice and you choose self-preservation? Do you feel the call to humility and, and yet at the same time you feel the call to make sure everybody in the room knows that you were right <laughs> or that you had the argument correct or that your guess was correct or that your viewpoint was right? The main point I want to show you in this passage is that the daily pursuit of walking closely with Jesus involves daily dying to self. This is just the normal Christian life. The daily death to self. The daily death to pride. The daily death to self-preservation. The daily willingness to identify with Jesus in his march toward Jerusalem. In his march toward death and in resurrection by choosing to pick up your cross daily. This is an act of sacrificing your sinful flesh as an act of spiritual worship. Because our natural inclination is toward prideful self-exaltation. The ordinary Christian life involves daily dying with Christ to ourself and becoming the least of all and the servant of all. And so my prayer for you today, and as I prepared this message, is that you would embrace this normal Christian life of self-denial and taking up your cross. Uh, and we're going to understand that a little bit more. So let's look back at verse 31. Jesus is teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Jesus is on this new mission toward Jerusalem. He has no time for the crowds, and he's teaching his disciples what's happening. Now, well, one amazing thing about this is Jesus will, over the course of weeks, maybe five, six, maybe even two months, he's talking about this, and we have at least three recorded times, um, four if you're in the small group of Peter, James, and John, where Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to be killed, but on the third day I'm going to rise. And he gives them time to process Time to think through. Time to understand. And multiple times, the disciples don't understand this. Remember the first time Jesus said it, what did Peter say? Oh no. No, you're not going to go. You don't have to go to Jerusalem and die. And, and, and Jesus turns around and calls him Satan and rebukes him very sharply. He says, you're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about um, the things of man. Um, so they don't understand. And they're, they're not quite getting it. But Jesus is communicating in this sort of loving, consistent way, giving them time to think and process. He's not yelling at them. He's not being uh, irritated with them. He's just communicating what's going to happen because he knows what's lying ahead, and he wants them to understand that this is going to change their life forever. So he gives them time to process it. He, he's not impatient. He's just communicating over a period of weeks what's about to take place. And so when they avoid all the crowds and they get to his hometown of Capernaum, uh, it says he was in the house 
and he asked them, what were you talking about along the way? Now, this is a minor point. It's not the main point of the passage, but I feel compelled to mention this issue about the house. Um, I felt compelled during the week to talk about Jesus and ministry within this house. And I think there's some application for us, albeit it's a minor point of the passage, but I think it sort of gets to the heart of Jesus's life and ministry in a unique way. So let me just give me a minute to indulge in this house issue. I, I looked up all the places in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus um, was in a house, when he worked within a house. Sometimes he's in a house for um, relationship building, right, with uh, Matthew, the Levi, the tax collector, and all of his uh, sort of tax collector, prostitute friends, and Jesus is with them, and he's reclining with them, and he's, this is where the Pharisees come and accuse Jesus of being a friend of sinners, because Jesus is, is in the house with them. There are times when Jesus withdraws privately, and he's just resting in his house. There are other times when he is teaching his disciples and avoiding ministry, so he's a uh, crowd ministry, and so he's doing discipleship ministry, but there are a number of times when there's a house, and so it led me to ask a few questions. Did Jesus own a large house? Well, we know that he had a house. He had a place, and I've been to Capernaum, and there's a spot where you can see there's even graffiti on a wall that traces back to the second century that says Peter stayed here, right? It's a, it's a part of an of a archaeological grid. It's, you can't go in there, but you can see it's, it's basically the size of two twin beds. Uh, it's a very small um, part of the house, but, but that may not have been the house that Jesus is talking about. So I don't know if he was staying with Peter or maybe he had his own house, but he had a fairly large house because we know at one point that crowds were flocking into the house and four buddies have a, a paralyzed friend that they want to get into the house where Jesus is teaching. And instead of being able to get in through the door where maybe 20 or 30 or maybe even 50 people are gathered, what do they do? They just tear the roof off the house, right? They, they lower the person into a spot where they just think Jesus is and, and they're right. So this is a fairly good-sized house. Um, and so I, I just want to make this minor point and it's interesting here to me is that home ministry opens a door to kingdom ministry, to disciple-making ministry. People who open their homes, open their homes for the gospel, allow people, listen closely, allow people into a window into their relationship with God. You go into someone's house and you begin to see what they sort of DVR and what they cherish and their art and their uh, what they eat and what they drink and what they celebrate and what they how they interact with their spouse and how they interact with their children and 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 it's harder to hide when people come into your house right you allow people to come in and out of your house and 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 it, it's a window into your walk with Jesus it's it's hard to be hypocritical when people are in and out of your home and they see your Christian life because you're your most natural, comfortable self at your house. And most people, when they're talking to me about a new home purchase, will say something like, yeah, it's a bigger house and it's a, it's a better house and we're just excited to use it for ministry. 
that's, that's our rationale, and sometimes they use that as a justification that they're going to buy twice the square footage because it's going to be used for ministry. Now, now, to their credit, a lot of people who I've heard say that actually do. They have a small group that meet in their home, or they, they have people over to their home, or they open their home. It's, it's not always a bad thing. It's amazing, though, how home and home ministry is a transparent um, way in which people see who we are, and we often prefer this sort of controlled, cleaned-up environment outside of our home to present who we are in Jesus. Home is a unique window into our walk with Jesus, and so a minor point of application, a challenge for you today, is how do you use your home? How is God redeeming your square footage? Are you embarrassed about your home? Are you embarrassed to allow people to come into your house and maybe they see parts of you that, um, that you wouldn't demonstrate at church? Or maybe you wouldn't be publicly uh, glad that people see that part of you. It's a, it's a natural part of us to present a front and to present a better Christian sanitized version of ourselves, but to allow people to come in and out of our home is a vulnerable step. It's also a step of hospitality. This was, if it wasn't Jesus' house, it was somebody's house, and they set apart this house for ministry. You think about all the people who gave up their homes for Jesus. There's, there's Zacchaeus, right, in Jericho area. He gives up his house. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today to eat, Zacchaeus. And he invites all of his friends, and it's this party. You think about Mary and Martha, and Martha is worried and upset about a great many things because there's all of these preparations to be made, and, and Mary, the sister, is just sitting at Jesus' feet doing nothing but listen to him. And, and there's a window into Martha and her vulnerability. that She's upset about all the preparations that have to be made with all the people. And, and you just get to see her in her raw situation. Jesus is invited into a Pharisee's house, and a woman who likely has had seven demons driven out of her comes to him and, and cries tears over her, his dirty feet and wipes his feet with her tears. All of this is taking place in a home environment. You think about the upper room, right? Um, the disciples had uh, well, went in and out of the upper room all throughout Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And, and this was a meeting place where, where some wealthy resident of Jerusalem made available his house for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what greater honor in redeeming your square footage than allowing great ministry to happen in your home? And there are a couple of caveats to this. Their home was used as a place of ministry, and yet it didn't upset the balance of their family life. There was a way in which they were able to operate out of their home 85% of the time, and maybe just a very small percentage of the time. The house was, um, was used for ministry, but for the majority of the time, it was a place of nurturing relationships, of nurturing a marriage, of nurturing a healthy relationship with your spouse, of nurturing a relationship with your children, of, of operating your own household. And so I don't want you to leave here with this minor sub-point here about the idea that we have to give our home up 100% of the time. You don't even see that within Jesus' ministry. But there is, there should be a willingness in all of us to say, I'm willing to host a small group from time to time. I'm willing to host a breakfast or a, uh, a dinner or a picnic or a gathering. And, and Jesus adds to that, you know, when you have a banquet, don't just invite your friends, but invite people that you don't know, that won't pay you back, that, that should benefit. This is biblical Christian hospitality. 
and I, it's a point that I wanted to make this morning as it gives us a window into our relationship with the Lord. So it's in the house, within this home environment, that we move on to verse 34. Jesus asked them, what are you talking about while we were walking along the way? And you have to wonder, did Jesus really not know what they were talking about? I mean, if there was a heated conversation taking place behind him as he's walking, I don't know, maybe I, I have this picture wrong, but I always imagine Jesus sort of leading the way, and the rest of the disciples, like a elementary school field trip, holding a rope, and just kind of marching along behind him. Maybe it wasn't like that at all. Maybe he was uh, riding on a donkey, and maybe they were all around him. Maybe they traveled in like a pack. Um, it probably wasn't a single file ride. I don't know why I have this weird image in my mind, but Jesus is taking them on a trip from Caesarea Philippi, way north. A couple weeks travel, and, and so maybe every time they stopped, Maybe every campground, maybe every hotel or inn or person's house along the way, maybe he's just hearing a rumbling and, and he does, he's trying to piece together what it is they're talking about, but they're talking about something and Jesus wants to know once they get back to Capernaum because he's been thinking about it along this road trip and it's a point of contention that he wants to bring up with them and they're embarrassed about it. Verse 34 says they kept silent for on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So on the heels of Jesus predicting his death, the disciples get into an argument. I think it's a neat choice of words, right? They didn't have a conversation. They weren't like jokingly, lightheartingly ribbing each other, you know, about who's going to be the best. This is their political understanding of Messiah. He's going to come. He's going to deliver us from the occupying army of Rome. He's going to kick out all the Romans, and he's going to set up his own government. And so with, with you know, hanging around with the king, there are positions of power. And so when they hear Jesus is going to Jerusalem, to the center of power, this is their mindset. We are going to have an appointment James and John, their, um, their mother asks along the way, hey, Jesus, when you come, can you allow one of them to sit at your right and one of them to sit at your left? And this is the normal Christian life where they are trying to exalt themselves. And it happens on the heels of Jesus predicting his death. He, Jesus even told them, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And so they're not having a conversation, they're not having a debate, it's not lighthearted, it's not playful. For a period of time, they're arguing with each other. They're arguing and comparing notes and resumes and accomplishments, and they're saying, who's going to stack up? Do you see the debate? But I did this, but it was me who did that. But when he comes in, he, he talks to me, but, but he took us up on the mountain and we saw the transfiguration. They're telling each other, they're arguing back and forth, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the greatest. Jesus is going to be killed, and he tells them, if you're going to follow me, you have to follow me in this downward arc of humiliation. And they want to know who's the greatest. I get this. I get this when I was very first called to be an evangelist in 2003. Uh, I had maybe 40 or 50 speaking opportunities uh, in a year. And during this year, I was traveling and speaking at youth retreats and camps and little Bible studies around Oklahoma City and areas. And there was one opportunity I had to speak at um, Falls Creek. It's a large Christian camp, and I was going to be a cabin speaker for a church. And it was between me and another sort of evangelist, a good friend of mine. And there was 
um, an issue, an invitation issued for me to be the camp speaker. And when I got there, I spoke for a week and things went very well. And when it was over, uh, one of the youth leaders said, I'm really glad that you spoke. Um, for a few months, we were trying to decide who should be the speaker. And there were two guys that we asked for their name and just for some reason, by way of, I don't know, just had a kind of the side of his mouth. He said, um, and, and, you know, Ron really didn't want you to speak. He didn't really like you. He thought this other guy was a much better speaker, and he wanted him to be in there, and he just, the guy moved on. But he said, but we're all glad that you spoke. And he moved on with this thing, but there was something about me that lodged in my mind that said, he's a better speaker? And he, and he thinks he's a better speaker. And every time I saw Ron, I would kind of side-eye him and was battling my flesh. I would try to be polite and friendly, but, but I was fighting against this urge of me that says, I want to be better than this other speaker. We're both gospel evangelists. I mean, we're preaching the gospel. Why, why am I, and Paul even said, some peach, preach, not peach, peaches are Florida or Georgia, but preach Christ out of rivalry, right? Some are preaching Jesus to be better than somebody else. And I felt that tension where I wanted to be exalted and I wanted to back pat and I wanted people to say what a great speaker I was and, and something about this youth leader ignited something wicked in me. This ambition, this unholy desire for my name to be elevated. Can you identify with that? Do you walk in a room and you want people to know that you're the one, that your opinion is right? Do you carry sort of some smug, arrogant operating system whereby you need people to know how good you are and how great you are and how much less people compare to you? This is a natural part of us. And it's a part of us that Jesus wants you to crucify. Verse 35, Jesus sits down among the twelve and he says to them, if anyone of you wants to be the first, that's everybody. Every person, don't elbow anybody, but every person around you on their pew wants to be first in their natural heart. They want to be right. They want to be true. They want, they want that, uh, people's appreciation. They want people to value them. They want people to see in them how special they are. It's just part of our natural tendency. And yet Jesus flips this on its head where our natural intuition is to be the best at the first of the line, at the head. Jesus says you must be the least. Jesus says you must be the servant of everyone. He goes directly to their heart and their motives and says, you want to be the best? You want all the attention? You want glory for yourself? You want to be ambitious in this way? You want fame and leadership and power? Those are the painful questions that Jesus is helping them see on his way to his crucifixion. And what he's doing is, listen really closely, he's calling them into closer union with himself. You understand? Jesus is saying, I'm going this way, downward. I'm going toward my humiliation, toward violence, toward crucifixion. And if you want to follow me, the path leads downward for you. You have to deny yourself. You have to carry your cross. You have to humble yourself. You have to become the servant of everyone. I'm going to the cross, and if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And he paints this picture as the normal Christian life. 
That means that every person who names the name of Jesus in this room, that your normal Christian path should be, how can I die today? I mean, I wrestle with this. I remember some Saturdays I'm watching a college football game and I hear the horn honk that means the groceries need to be unloaded from the van and I mean, they're ready to come out here and, and it's easy for me just to act like I'm asleep. I don't even, I don't even hear a honk. Right? I don't even know that there's groceries. Or to hear the door kind of open loudly and, and to know that telltale sign of stumbling in with six grocery bags and uh, right? or, or having to put groceries away. Or every time I walk by a sink full of dishes, I think, oh, you know, I can crucify. If I could sort of die to myself and take care of this, and, and by doing so, it would bring life to somebody else. Somebody else would have less time, less uh, uh, more time to themselves, more time to rest. If I just would take care of this, or I could switch the laundry, or I could I could do all these other things. There are a thousand little ways that we're called to crucify ourselves and to follow Jesus. Several years ago, a friend of mine, Rick, challenged me with a quote he heard. He said, Gibson, biblical manhood is the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. Biblical manhood, that is, if you're going to be a man of the Bible, you are embracing a downward path of sacrificial responsibility. I'll take on more un fun duties and responsibilities and I'll just do the bad stuff in order to have greater union with Christ. And it's in this way that we follow Jesus downward by carrying our cross and following him. I'm going to recommend a book. I'm not preaching from this book, but uh, Paul Miller has recognized this as a pattern in the New Testament. And he's written a book called uh, J-Curve. And J-Curve is this, he describes it as this act of choosing a path of dying to self. It's this act of crucifying your flesh so that you may have greater union with Jesus, greater intimacy with Christ, greater victory over sin, more power in your personal witness, more ability to say no to temptation, more, uh, greater obedience, and all the ways that you follow Jesus through this downward path, you experience more of them. And it's mentioned all throughout the New Testament. For example, Philippians 1.29, Paul says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Jesus, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See the progression? You believe in Jesus, and it's been granted to you to believe in Jesus. And in the process of believing in Jesus, it's also been granted a, a benefit for you is to suffer for his sake. I'll turn over to Philippians chapter 2 because it's, a, it's been labeled as a, a, a hymn or a, some sort of a poem that they would recite in the early church. And it's Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 7, that is almost this poetic expression that shows us the downward path of Jesus. And Paul is telling the Philippians as he enters into verse 5, he's saying, if, you, if, you're, if there's any union with Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation with him, uh, any affection, any sympathy, any encouragement in Christ, he's basically saying, if there's any attachment for you to Jesus and to the Spirit, if you are in Christ, 
complete my, my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is how he's going to describe union with Christ. Do nothing out of rivalry. <laughs> That's what the disciples were doing. They were rivalry. They were trying to say who's the best. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. There's a daily dying in the way you treat someone around you. The way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your children, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat your coworker, the way you treat the person you care for, the way you treat the patient that you have, the way you treat your students in class. Every person, just like your home is a window to your relationship with Christ, the way in which you approach people, Paul says do it not out of conceit, not for your own benefit, not for your own glory, not so that you can be shown to be great in your own eyes, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Let each of you be to his own interest, not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And this is the hymn, the poem, the, the, the thing they would recite in the New Testament. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, you can see he's on this level of he is God, in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see all the points of downward progression? There is a path, an arc to the normal Christian life that includes daily following Jesus down this path. And in the process of that, there are these resurrection moments. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you'll find these J-curves, as Paul Miller describes them all over Scripture, Romans 6, 2-4, through 4, describes the crucifixion of your flesh uh, and the daily dying to sin. There are a number of other places. What's important for us to understand is that dying with Jesus kills sin. Rising with him creates new life and obedience. And in these sort of new resurrection moments, it's not the same as Jesus' resurrection, but he gives to you greater life, greater joy, greater peace, greater victory, greater intimacy with him. And so Jesus defines this regular Christian life and it creates this battle within us. And I experience it all the time. And I don't always come out on top. Most of the time, I don't. Right? I'm battling this just like you. Just a few weeks ago, I had, you know, this time of year, you kind of long for sun, right? Don't you just long for like the warmth? I found myself last week sitting in a window at the office for like 30 minutes just letting the sun just, I wanted to go to a beach. I want to be somewhere warm. Amen? Right? Don't you want to be warm? And so last week, last Monday, it's this. I see the weather. My family's at school. I think I could, if I, if I get up and get them off to school, I, I could get away for two hours. I could go, I could be at least on a beach in Jersey or something in a couple of hours. I could do that. And at the same time, a friend calls and says, uh, you know, I need you to come to the hospital at Johns Hopkins. Things aren't going well. And, and so I said, okay, 
And so I drove down and uh, spent the day with him Sunday after church and then um, spent the night at the hospital and then got up early and I'm still battling my flesh at six o'clock in the morning in my car in the parking garage. I'm just waking up and I'm thinking I could, I could get to a B. I even Googled how far is Ocean City, Maryland, right? I could get there three hours. Oh. Instead, I go back upstairs and I spend the rest of the afternoon or morning there just, uh, just with my friend. And I felt this tension, this battle, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is part of this choosing death and experiencing more of Jesus. My flesh wants to go one direction, and, and yet I want to experience selfishly in this way, but Jesus wants me to experience more of him. Let me close with this story. It's been an impactful story in my life. I don't think I've shared it for years. Um, but I was on staff at a church in Oklahoma City. And <clears throat> I was one of nine or ten pastors. And I had a handful of ministry areas that I was kind of overseeing. And one of them was this, um, this wonderful kind of spicy women's Bible study. <laughs> they met for years. They had their routine. They had their rhythm. I was not allowed to interfere. I'm like a 26-year-old guy, and they're, they're these older saints, and they know what they're doing. They know their curriculum. They know their stuff. They just occasionally needed resources, and so I was surprised one day when they came to me, and they said, we need your help. Um, I said, well, what, what can I do for you? And they said, well, two years ago, we, we sort of adopted as a group this woman who is homeless and her family. And it was our job, to, so we adopted her as a group, and we started to walk with her through budgeting and through planning and through career development and through getting a resume. And we, for two and a half years, we walked with her to get her off the streets and into a place and into a, a place where she's being fed and she's being taken care of, and her two sons are there, and, and, and she's been doing great. She gave her life to Christ. We baptized her, and I was a part of that. I remember that, and yet I was surprised to hear what was happening. She said one of the sons got in legal trouble, um, and and his... He's, his legal issues have completely upset the balance of their rent situation, and she's being evicted tomorrow. The landlord is driving up from Houston tomorrow to evict her, and we've just worked so hard, and we've seen so much progress in her that we can't have that. Would you intervene? And I said, I'll do what I can. And so I called the guy, and I said, listen, if you'll just give her another month, I'll personally guarantee that she's out of the house in a month. And I'll guarantee that the house is cleaned up and, and ready to go. And, and thirdly, if it's not out of my own personal um, ministry budget from the church, I'll pay what it takes to get the apartment clean. And so he reluctantly turns his car around on I-35 and heads back to Houston. Um, and so I think, okay, we've got a month. And so I started to work with this woman, and I started to uh, identify places, and we found a place, and, and within a week or two, she agreed that we can move in there. Uh, within another week, she moved out completely. And I'm thinking, this is easy. We're just checking along. All the boxes are being checked, and we can do this. And so a week before, the landlord is coming up on a Tuesday to inspect the place. I start calling her and saying, okay, I'm going to be there Tuesday morning. You need to have the house clean. I'm going to rent a shampooer, and I'm going to rent a rug doctor. And it's, you know, it's like July or 
or August in Oklahoma, and so it's like 120 degrees in this little garage apartment, and so I'm just warning you, everything needs to be clean, I'm going to come in and like deep clean, we're going to try to get some other people, and we're going we're gonna to make this thing, because my, my kind of, you know, my name is on the line, that's <laughs> kind of selfishly what I was thinking, and she doesn't return my call, so the next day I call back, the next day, the next day, Friday, still no call, Saturday, Sunday, I'm sweating, it's not in church, she's not there Monday, no call, and so I, I pretty much know what's happening. I'm going to go in on Tuesday, and it's going to be a bad day. I just know it. So I show up Tuesday, like 6.30 in the morning, and um, I'm you know, dressed for the occasion, and no one's there. I knock on doors, I knock on windows, and no one's there. And so I sit in my car, and I'm just furious. I'm starting to pray those kind of imprecatory prayers, you know, the songs that are like, smash the teeth of the wicked Lord, you know, I'm just in my flesh, I'm, I'm seeing people, it's heating up outside, and I'm just frustrated, so finally I think, well, maybe there's a window open, so I start to open windows and open windows, and in the back, around the corner, I see a broken window, another thing to fix, so I reach my hand in, and as I get close, the smell hits me, and I realize that the three dogs that they've had in this house where there weren't supposed to be dogs, have basically used the house as a bathroom all hot summer. So I reach in and I open the door and I'm just floored by a smell. And it's not just the smell that's bad. I notice around the three-room apartment that there's just piles of trash. And I'm not exaggerating. It's up to my shins. In some places, up to my knee. The only clear place on the floor are where three mattresses used to sit. Three mattresses on the floor, and, and, and I'm just opening windows and opening doors, and I'm furious that I have to do this. So angry. And I, I go out to my van, and I tie this bandana around my face, and I put on, like, I'm just, I'm just thinking of all the, like, germs and stuff that I'm going to have to deal with, and there's animal waste everywhere. There's needles from uh, drug use. There's uh, cigarette butts and ashes. Uh, I, there are roaches and clips everywhere. And I know what those things are. And there are alcohol bottles. There's pornography everywhere. And I, I'm just disgusted by this mess. And I get a big broom and like a snow shovel. And I shovel everything into the middle in a pile. And it's getting waist high. And I bring in a dumpster. And I'm just going to start. I don't care what's in it. I don't care if they wanted to save anything. I'm just shoveling stuff. And maybe five minutes into this process, just very clearly, out of nowhere, this thought hits me that, um, and it's as if the Lord was in the room whispering to me, he says, this looks just like your heart did when I first came in. And I just had a real sense of what I looked like as a sinner to Jesus. Because everything in the room matched what was going on in my own life when I met Jesus. And the level of grace that the Holy God stooped to, to come into my own life and to lovingly take his time to clean my own life up of all the issues that I was dealing with, all the addictions and all the struggles. And I just had a real sense in that moment of the presence of Jesus coming into this house and cleaning it. And it looked just like what I imagined my own heart looked like. And I was so overwhelmed by it that I stopped shoveling and I pulled the bandana down, and I just stood there for minutes, just 
looking around and seeing all this stuff and, and those words echoing in my mind that this is what my life looked like when Jesus came in and, and knowing that he patiently, lovingly took all the time to clean up the messes in my life that I had made and that he gracefully forgave me of all my sins and, and that he's still today on his knees polishing the dirty crevices of my own heart. The stuff that I don't even know how filthy I am. Jesus lovingly came into my life and did that work. And, and in that filthy house, I wrote a short story about it called The House of Filth. And in that sort of story, I understand how humbling it was for Jesus. And for the rest of the morning, they didn't show up until like 1230. But by that time, my attitude flipped. I cleaned lovingly. I, I cleaned carefully, I cleaned worshipfully, and I experienced the presence of the Lord as I sang, and as I prayed, and as I was thankful for every liquor bottle, for every needle that I had to put gloves on to dispose of, for every piece of animal waste, for every fast food wrapper with maggots in it, for every little bit of filth in that, it was a worship experience for me as I, I felt the presence of God close. Now listen, I've been to Bethlehem, I've been to Nazareth. I've swam in the Sea of Galilee. I've, I've been to um, Jerusalem, to the place where Jesus, the empty tomb. I've, I've seen all those places, and you would think uh, you experienced the presence of God there. You probably experienced the presence of God. Nothing compared to the house of filth. In the act of me choosing humility, and death to my own flesh to go in and clean that house, the presence of the Lord became magnified in that place. Do you understand how a J-curve works? Do you understand how the normal Christian life should be one of denying yourself and identifying with Jesus on the humble path downward and allowing Him to, for you to experience a greater union with Him as a result of your choosing to follow him downward. Listen, this is not about how great you are. And if you're self-seeking and need attention and need people to say how great you are and, and every post is about you and every issue is about how many likes and how many people can say, wow, what a wonderful person you are, maybe it's time for a heart check. Maybe it's time for you to let your works be done in secret so that your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing. Maybe it's time for you to pursue Jesus and allow someone else to take the credit and to serve in such a way that nobody knows. You know, there are a dozen people who show up here on a Sunday that just serve quietly and they don't want attention. They don't want, they don't want anybody to know who they are and what they're doing. They're just here as a way of identifying with Christ. I think it's beautiful. And in so doing, we experience a greater measure of Jesus' presence. So Lord, we thank you that you battle against our flesh, which wants to be first and right and up, up front and, and in control and in such a way that everybody can see how great we are. And yet help us by your Spirit to identify with John the Baptist who said, He must become greater and I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. Help us to identify with Paul where he says, uh, I have all these things that I could boast in, yet I boast in the cross of Christ. Help us to see the normal Christian life as one of 
sacrifice. And help us to understand that we would never die for you, Jesus, if we're not willing to do the dishes. We'll never give our life for you if we're not willing to serve the least of these. Help us to do so in such a way that honors you. And I pray that you would help us to experience more of your presence in identifying with you in your death. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with